Chapter Fifteen, O'Hara's Mind Is Made Up, Part Two of Black Moth by Georgette Heyer, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Half an hour later, his adieus made, Jim and the baggage following, my lord rode out with O'Hara on his way to Thur's house. For some time there was silence between the two men, with only a perfunctory remark or two on the fineness of the day and the freshness of the mare to break it. Carstairs's mind was, as his friend well knew, dwelling on all that he had left behind him. His parting with Diana had been quite ordinary, she at least making no sign that he was anything beyond a chance acquaintance. Indeed, it had almost seemed to him that her attitude was slightly aloof, as if she had drawn a little into herself. Her hand, when he kissed it, had been lifeless and cold, her smile sweetly remote. He knew that he had held the hand a fraction of a minute longer than was strictly in accordance with the rules on good manners, and he feared that he had clasped it in a most unseemly wise, pressing it hard against his lips. He wondered whether she had remarked it. He little guessed that long after he had ridden out of sight, she continued to feel that pressure. If he could have seen her passionately kissing each finger separately, for fear her lips might pass over the exact spot his had touched, his heart might have been lighter. It was true that she had retired into her shell, a little hurt at what she had termed his man's blind obstinacy. She had laid her heart bare for him to read, she had offered herself to him as plainly as if she had spoken in terms less general than in the plusence. She had fought desperately for her happiness, thrusting aside all thought of maiden modesty, and when she afterwards had realized what she had done, and tried to imagine what he must think of her, she had blushed dark, and mentally flayed herself for her lack of proper pride and manners. Terrified that he might think her immodest, overwhelmed with sudden shyness, she had been colder in her attitude toward him than she had intended, even in her anxiety not to appear forward. But in spite of her coldness, how intensely had she hoped that he would sense her love, and all that she wanted him to know! Incomprehensible, the ways of women! Not endowed with feminine perspicacity or intuition, how could John hope to understand her dual feelings? He only knew that he had hurt her, and that she had drawn back that she might not lay herself open to more. He could not hope to understand her when she did not fully understand herself. Reflecting on the swiftness with which love had come to them, he believed that with a like swiftness it might fade, at least from Diana's memory. He told himself that he hoped for that end, but he was honest enough to know that it was the last thing in the world he wanted. The mere thought of Diana indifferent to him, or worse, another man's bride, made him bite on his underlip and tighten his hold on the rein. O'Hara cast many a surreptitious glance at the stern young profile beside him, wondering whether his lordship would outlast the tedious ride or no. He knew enough of Carstairs's indomitable courage to believe that he would, but he feared that it would prove too great a strain on him in his present weakened condition. Very wisely he made no attempt to draw Carstairs out of his abstraction, but continued to push on in silence, past fields knee-deep in grass, soon to be hay, with sorrel and poppies growing apace, along lanes with hedges high above their heads on either side, over hill and down dale, always in silence. Presently O'Hara fell a little to the rear, that he might study his friend without palpably turning to do so. He thought he had never seen Jack's face wear such a black look. The fine brows almost met over his nose, with only two sharp furrows to separate them. The mouth was compressed, the chin a little prominent, and the eyes, staring ahead between Jenny's nervous ears, seemed to see all without absorbing anything. One hand at his hip was clenched on his riding-whip, the other mechanically guided the mare. 
O'Hara found himself admiring the lithe grace of the man, with his upright carriage and splendid seat. Suddenly, as if aware that he was being studied, my lord half turned his head and met O'Hara's eyes. He gave a tiny shrug, and with it seemed to throw off his oppression. The frown vanished, and he smiled. "'I beg your pardon, Miles. I am a surly fellow.' "'Mayhaps your shoulder troubles you,' suggested O'Hara tactfully. "'No, I am barely conscious of it. I have no excuse beyond bad manners and a worse temper.' From thence onward he set himself to entertain his friend, and if his laugh was sometimes rather forced, at least his wit was enough to keep O'Hara in a pleasurable state of amusement for some miles. By the time they arrived at Thur's house, Carstairs was suspiciously white about the mouth, and there was once more a furrow, this time of pain, between his brows. But he was able to greet my Lady O'Hara with fitting elegance, and to pay her at least three neat, laughing compliments before O'Hara took him firmly by the arm and marched him to his room there to rest and recover before the dinner-hour. Shortly after, Jim arrived, highly contented with his new surroundings, and able to give a satisfactory verdict on Jenny's stalling. He had quite accepted O'Hara as a friend, after some jealous qualms, and was now well pleased that his master should be in his house, instead of roaming the countryside. At five o'clock, as the gong rang, my lord descended the stairs resplendent in old gold and silver trimmings, determined to be as gay and light-hearted as the occasion demanded, as though there had never been a Diana to upset the whole course of a man's life. Not for nothing had he fought against the world for six long years. Their teaching had been to hide all feeling beneath a perpetual mask of nonchalance and wit, never for an instance to betray a hurt, and never to allow it to appear that he was anything but the most carefree of men. The training stood him in good stead now, and even O'Hara wondered to see him in such spirits after all that had passed. Lady Molly, delighted with her guest, admiring his appearance, his fine, courtly manners, and falling an easy victim to his charm. O'Hara, watching them, saw with content that his capricious little wife was really attracted to my lord. It was a high honour, for she was hard to please, and many of O'Hara's acquaintances had been received, if not with actual coldness, at least without any degree of warmth. At the end of the meal she withdrew with the warning that they were not to sit too long over their wine, and that Miles was not to fatigue his lordship. O'Hara pushed the decanter towards his friend. "'I've a piece of news I dare say will interest ye,' he remarked. Carstairs looked at him inquiringly. "'Aye, tis that his grace of Andover has withdrawn his precious person to Paris.' Carstairs raised one eyebrow. "'I suppose he would naturally wish to remain in the background after our little fracas. Does he ever wish to be in the background? You probably know him better than I do, does he?' "'He does not. Tis always out in front he is, mighty prominent. Damn him!' My lord was faintly surprised. "'Why that? Has he ever interfered with you?' "'He has interfered with my best friend to some purpose. I fear the boot was on the other leg. Well, I know something of how he interferes with Dick.' Carstairs put down his glass, all attention now. "'With Dick? How?' O'Hara seemed to regret having spoken. "'Oh, well, I've no sympathy with him. What has Tracy done to him?' "'Tis nothing of great moment.' "'Merely that he and that worthless brother of his seek to squeeze him dry. "'Robert? Andrew. I know very little of Robert.' "'Andrew? But he was a child. "'Well, he's grown up now, and as rake as a young spendthrift as you could ever wish for. "'Dick seems to pay their debts. "'Devil take him! Why?' "'Heaven knows. I suppose Lavinia insists. "'We all knew that twas for that reason Tracy flung you both in her way. "'Nonsense! We went of our own accord. She had but returned from school.' "'Exactly. And whose doing was that but Tracy's? 
Carstairs opened his eyes rather wide, and leant both arms on the table, crooking his fingers round the stem of his wine-glass. "'Do the debts amount to much?' "'I can't tell you that. "'Twas but by chance I found it out at all. "'The Belmanois were never moderate in their manner of living. "'Nor were any of us. "'Don't be so hard on them, Miles. "'I knew, of course, that the Belmanois estate was mortgaged, "'but I did not guess to what extent. "'I don't know that either, "'but Dick's money does not go to pay it off. "'Tis all frittered away on gambling and pretty women.' "'My lord's brow darkened ominously. "'Yes, I think I shall have a little score to settle with Tracy on that subject, some day.' Miles said nothing. "'But how does Dick manage without touching my money?' "'I do not know.' O'Hara's tone implied that he cared less. "'I hope he is not in debt himself,' mused Carstairs. "'Tis like enough he is in some muddle. I wish I might persuade him to accept the revenue.' He frowned and drummed his fingers on the table. O'Hara exploded. "'Sure, twould be like you to be doing the same. Let the man alone for the Lord's sake, and don't be after worrying your head over a miserable spalpeen that did you more harm than—' "'Miles, I cannot allow you to speak so of Dick. You do not understand. I understand well enough. Tis too Christian ye are entirely. And let us have an end to this farce of yours. I know that Dick cheated as well as you do, and I say tis natural for you to be wanting him to take your money after he's done you out of honour and all else.' Carstairs sipped his wine quietly, waiting for Miles's anger to evaporate, as it presently did, leaving him to glower balefully. Then he started to laugh. "'Oh, Miles, let me go my own road. I'm a sore trial to you, I know.' Then, suddenly sobering, "'But I want you not to think so hardly of Dick. You know enough of him to understand a little how it all came about. You know how extravagant he was, and how often in debt. Can you not pardon the impulse of a mad moment?' "'That I could pardon. What I could not forgive is his unutterable meanness in letting you bear the blame. O'Hara, he was in love with Lavinia. So were you. Not so deeply.' With me twas a boy's passion, but with him twas serious. O'Hara remained silent, his mouth unusually hard. Put yourself in his place, pleaded Jack, if you— Thank you, O'Hara laughed unpleasantly. No, Jack, we shall not agree on this subject, and we had best leave it alone. I do not think you need to worry about him, though. I believe he is not in debt. Does he have a fair luck with his racing, and is— O'Hara smiled grimly. Dick is a very changed man, John. He does not keep racehorses, neither does he play cards, save for appearance's sake. Dick, not play? Then what does he do? Manages your estates and conducts his wife to routes. When in town, bitterly, he inhabits your house. Well, there is none else to use it, but I cannot imagine Dick turned sober. Tis easy to be righteous after the evil is done, I'm thinking. My lord ignored this remark. A curious smile played about his mouth. Egad, Miles, tis very entertaining. I, the erstwhile sober member, what is the matter? I am now the profligate. I dice, I gamble, I rob. Dick, the ne'er-do-well, is saint. He, uh, lives a godly and righteous life, and is, uh, robbed by his wife's relations. After all, I do not think I envy him over much. At least you enjoy life more than he does, said O'Hara, grinning, for you have no conscience to reckon with. Carstairs's face was inscrutable. He touched his lips with his napkin and smiled. "'As you say, I enjoy life more. But as to conscience, I do not think it is that.' O'Hara glanced at him sitting sideways in his chair, one arm flung over its back. "'Will you be offended if I ask you a question?' "'Of course not. Then do you intend to go back to this high-road robbery?' "'I do not. Then what will you do?' The shadows vanished, and my lord laughed. "'To tell you the truth, Miles, I have not yet settled that point.' 
Fate will decide, not I. End of chapter 15, part 2. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.